So a couple of years ago, Stella and I sought out a really cold place to travel to. Since we both love the cold weather, we love the snow, we love the ice, we love wind. It was There's something magical for us, so I don't ask me to explain it in the cold. And so we decided on a place that we actually had previously planned for, but actually found out as soon as we were ready to book it that there was a bat mitzvah that weekend. But now Iceland was in our sights and in our budget, and so the anticipation uh, started to build. So Iceland it was. It was an amazing trip. And we were not disappointed with the cold. Sitting outside of our little cabin in a little town called Vik on the southern shore of the island and watching the northern lights was as humbling as it was beautiful. We were very much anticipating the next day as we were planning to hike a glacier. And early the next morning, that's where we found ourselves. We were at the foot of an enormous glacier on the tip of a volcano called Katla, one of the most active volcanoes on the island. And just to give you an idea of how active it was, we found out when we got down, after being up there for several hours, that the government had issued a yellow warning, not a red one, a yellow one, which meant that the magma right under our feet was moving unpredictably and that there was a small chance that fissures were, would open up while we were up there. I'm still wondering to this day whether or not I would have wanted to be isolated on a glacier as a volcano opened up and earthquakes surrounded us. Of course, nothing happened, and we began our trek up the glacier even more. Now, for a little geology lesson, a glacier is not snow that has fallen on top of a mountain. That's not what it is. A glacier is defined by the weight of snow, one layer on top of the other, until all of the oxygen is actually compressed out of the ice to create a, a, a type of ice that is actually harder than steel. It takes thousands of years to compress a glacier. And it was awe-inspiring to realize that the glacier that we were walking on predates the story of Abraham by 5,000 years. And we trekked, and uh, one of us fell. Uh, we listened to our guide, uh, who said something that I will never forget. He said that the rate of ice melt is greater than the weight of the snow that needs to replenish it. Once it's gone, he's told us, it's gone forever. The simple truth, whether we like it or not, is that each passing day, the glacier recedes. And though it is not obvious by standing on top of it, it's obvious when you get to the bottom of it and you can see with your own eyes how much it has receded in the past 15 years. The before and after pictures are striking. And if there is any doubt in your mind about the reality of ice melt or changing climate, Go to Iceland and look for yourself. It will change your perspective. I know it made me even more aware of what's going on. So new, why a story about ice melt and glaciers and volcanoes and climate? Because Rosh Hashanah is the birthday of the world. 
when Rosh Hashanah was created based on one verse in the Torah, one verse in the Torah, the world was basically wild. There was no industrialization. There were no cities as we think of cities today. For the creators of Rosh Hashanah, the world looked as it always had and how it always would be. They had no idea what we would end up doing to it or with it. That is why it is so interesting that one of the themes of Rosh Hashanah, uh, one of the other themes uh, of Rosh Hashanah uh, created when they created the framework of the holiday is that they began a period of 10 days of repentance that was a time of hit orerut, of waking up. And though they had primarily had repentance and forgiveness and righteousness in mind, it's almost as if our sages were prescient as to our awareness on Rosh Hashanah that our sins are not just about each other, but our sins toward the earth itself. In fact, in our Machzor, there are several lines in the Al-Chet prayer, the prayer that begins with the phrase, for the sins we have committed, that deal with our relationship to the natural world. As I mentioned, Rosh Hashanah is not mentioned anywhere uh, to any extent in the Tanakh, in the Bible. There is simply called something called the Day of Remembrance, which is a day of sounding the shofar, which is what we do. But other than that, there's no text that we're supposed to pay attention to. There's nothing we're supposed to remember. And when there is a hole in the text, it is an open invitation to fill it. And as we have done in generations past, we fill it with who we are now and who and what our foci ought to be. And so, in the spirit of Hitorarut, of waking up, Every one of us really needs to look at Rosh Hashanah not simply as a beginning of our repentance or simply the beginning of a Jewish New Year. It is time, way past time, to delve deeper. As a colleague said, if we are to embrace this holy day as a new year, then it should be about a return to our story of creation and to our role in that creation. <coughs> Excuse me. When I was growing up in Canada, I was exposed to a poster that came out of World War I. And uh, uh, the poster was created in 1915, and it had a picture of a young child sitting on her father's knee with her brother sitting on the floor playing with his toys and looking up. And she's speaking to her father, and she says to him, Daddy, what did you do during the war? Well... Of course, the line is meant to create a sense of responsibility, but I look even more closely at the graphic, and here's what I see. The girl is asking the question, and the boy is not paying attention to all. And I ask myself, which one are we? Are we challenging the way things are in order to change our behavior? Or are we playing with our toys on the floor? There is a lot of weight in that poster from 106 years ago. And just like the creators of Rosh Hashanah, they had no idea what their concepts would come to mean. Can you imagine, not simply your grandchildren, but your own children saying to you, what exactly did you do in these trying times? Well, they are asking it and answering it in one way or another. 
More and more young adults are not having children for fear of the kind of world that we will be leaving them. They are speaking by voting. They are educated. They have become aware of the difference between science and propaganda. Every young person I know, without exception, knows that we are living in a critical time. And they're wondering why we don't know it. How does one ever know what the historians of the future will consider whatever years you are in to be pivotal? History really doesn't announce itself and say, this is the moment your children and grandchildren will ask you what you did and what choices you made. Even though we treat, even though the way we treat the earth or exploit it has economic and political overtones, for sure today is a moment to respond spiritually. Politics too often clouds the soul and makes us say and do things that are counterproductive. Today we do things that are supposed to nourish our soul. Today we embrace the truth. Today we embrace honesty. And today we consider the very planet we live on on this day of the world's birth. We look to the language from our tradition to recover awe and the wonder of nature. Our spiritual language of our relationship to the world fills our sources and our texts. The myths of creation can give us meaning and more importantly, hope and resilience as we continue to literally burn the very ground we walk on. And it is that spiritual dimension of our relationship to nature that will elevate our conversations about our challenges and lift them above politics. Icelanders have done exactly this in a striking but somber and tragic way. Let's go back to Iceland for a moment. There's a museum in Reykjavik, the capital of the land of fire and ice, and it has models of the disappearing glaciers showing which ones will be gone in 150 to 200 years. And faced with this truth and the obvious evidence that they see every day when they drive on Ringvidur 1, the main road around the island, the obvious, the, the, the obvious evidence before their eyes created a memorial service. Last summer, they had a memorial service for a glacier that is now gone forever. They sat Shiva for something that was more than 25,000 years old and is now literally water vapor. It's easy to fall into a well of despair. It's easy to simply give up. It may actually be so that those who are rushing to burn and exploit feel the same way and simply think that since there is no hope, what am I being so careful for? It's basically the scene in every end-of-the-world movie or book that has a wild party that only ends when the world ends. Well, I'm going to tell you, my friends, the party is over. And no one needs to be reminded or even see the mess that we need to clean up. And alongside science and technology to create the tools to literally begin healing our burning world, we need to start to change how we look at the world, not as a rock to exploit, but as a mystery to revere, something in which to stand in awe. And when we do that, our attitude changes for the better. Because if you revere something, we'll work harder to preserve it. It's, a, it's well known that the Hebrew word for tov, for, uh, for, uh, the Hebrew word tov, good, 
appear seven times in the first chapter of Genesis. Again and again, God, God saw that it was good. And whatever happened later in the Torah may not have been pleasing to God, but the stuff the Torah tells us that God created is itself good. The sages loved this idea, and they wrote how the world is described as good. They wrote a beautiful midrash to underscore exactly what this means for us to appreciate how good the world is. And this is what they wrote. They said, upon creating the first human beings, God guided them around the Garden of Eden. And God said to them, look at my creation. See how beautiful and perfect they are. I created everything for you. Make sure you don't ruin or destroy my world, because if you do, there will be no one after you to fix it. Once again, a text from 1,700 years ago seems prophetic in its insight. It was almost as if our rabbis sensed what kind of world this would evolve into, and how if we kept burning it, there would be nothing left for us or our children. Their warnings were prescient. Now it is the moment to see if we have the spiritual response and are up to the task. The first change we need to make is to reread the commandment that God gives to Adam when he says, be fertile and increase, fill the earth and master it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the living things that creep on earth. This is, I think, the most bastardized verse in the entire Torah. People have used this verse, fill the earth and master it, as an excuse to destroy animals, to tear down forests, to destroy the land at will, thinking that this is their permission, their permission to throw away the earth as if it is some kind of infinite provider of wealth without any consequences. And then, right, uh, right after this story, a few verses later, there's another creation story. We are no longer commanded to master the, and rule over the earth, but rather our role changes. And the, the text says God took man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to till the land and to guard over it. Our sages instantly understood the implications of this. They wrote a midrash to reflect this understanding when they said, lest you think yourselves so powerful and so free to take as much as you can, remember you were created on the very last day of creation. The gooey little snail and the annoying mosquitoes and the gnats were created long before we were. Have a little humility next time you seek to dominate the earth instead of being its exploiters. Today we know what being dominating has brought to us instead of what being good stewards has brought to us. People in times gone by would chalk up natural disasters to the stars. The word disaster, by the way, comes from a dis, which means negation, and astrum, which means star, an ill-fated star, a disaster. We don't have that luxury, given the science of our real environmental change. And though it is true that we cannot say exactly what extent we have created this situation, we can surely agree on the simple truth, regardless of our politics, that continuing on our current path is ridiculous, perilous, and frankly suicidal. This, more than anything, is going to be our challenge in the next dozen or so years. Being compassionate 
Uh, being compassionate is an easy response to a disaster. We give some to DACA, uh, to some on-the-ground organization. But a good heart is only half the soul. We need a good head, too. We are not lacking for knowledge about how to live in greater harmony with the world, but we are pinned in place by our ridiculous old habits. Rosh Hashanah is a time for hitorarut. It's a time for waking up, which brings us to action and what we can do. This is about our personal responsibility in the realms of religion and science and politics. Religion supplies the language, the purpose, the values, the hope. Science, the instruments of change, and politics, a realm of a collective sense of a shared future. I believe that we must never give up hope. We need to begin to look at our earth, not just in economic and political terms, but also in spiritual terms. A colleague once said, here is what the Torah teaches in summary. Creation is said to be good seven times. Seven is the number of perfection. And what do we do with what is inherently good? All the days of our creation myth suggest purpose, meaning, interconnectedness, and limits. Humanity is created on the sixth day to instill humility and the right to use the earth, to have dominion over it. But after one simple infraction, eating of one fruit, think about how many infractions against the world we had just this past week. After that one infraction, we lose our right to the Garden of Eden. That's the message of the Torah. Yes, we do have a moral right to use our planet for our benefit, but we also have the moral responsibility to make sure it's there for your grandchildren. Noah is said to have had 120 years to build his ark in order to warn his generation and have them change their ways, and Noah was unsuccessful. That's right. The ancient Midrash imagined Noah spending 120 years building the ark. The Midrash tells us he had, he had all the time to warn the people, and they didn't listen. Will we? The temple is listening. To that end, we're going to do something very easy that will actually make a difference, regardless of how small we think it is. I've created a brand new Tashlich. After services this morning, we're going to do a different kind of tashlich. Usually we go down to the ocean, we take some breadcrumbs, we feed the fishes. Today we're going to do something else. We're going to do what Jews have done all the time. We are going to plant three trees in the backyard. And to deal with the issue of food insecurity, we will once again have our Yom Kippur food drive. In two small steps, two very small steps, we have begun to repair what is broken. We live in an era of instant communication where information spreads literally at the speed of light. We want frictionless environments. We want immediate and turnkey solutions to every problem. But fast solutions do not work with slow type problems. If we are hungry and we can afford it, we call Uber, Uber Eats. But to solve food insecurity, we can't just call up an app. If we miss a friend and we can afford it, we call, we text, or we look at them through video conferencing. But to solve an epidemic of loneliness, of depression, or other mental health challenges, different thinking is needed. Mass media can introduce ideas, but it takes a generational shift where members of society are willing to share new ideas, 
to struggle with them, to sacrifice some of their own self-interest, and to discover once again true communal redemption. To tackle the most insidious and destructive forces of society, we have to be willing to move both fast and slow. At the end of the creation story, God created the first human, and for the first time, instead of saying, behold, it is good, God says when he looks at humanity, behold, it is very good. According to the Torah, our goodness is built into our very DNA. But DNA can only go so far. As we wake up and experience our hit orarut, our wakefulness, will we have the strength? Will we have the insight? Will we have the spiritual connection to the very land upon which we walk? So that God could say, behold, humanity has done it again. They are very good. The clock is literally ticking. And on this Rosh Hashanah, really, are we waking up? And so I do have a prayer on this Rosh Hashanah. I want this prayer to be a year of awareness that leads to blessing and an awareness that we are simply sojourners here for a minute period of time. Let us embrace the teachings of our sages. Let humility flow through us so that we can indeed leave a world that remains very good for our children and for their children. Shana Tova, Tova. Let's make it a good year. Let's make it a clean year. And let's all wake up.